We're calling this unintended consequences, and you can find this passage in your pew Bible, if that's what you're using, in, on page 238, 1 Kings 3, verse 1 through 28. Uh, this is the last of a three-part series about money. A great many references in the Bible to money. Some of them negative, some of them positive, but uh, most of them, just like all the other references to things in the physical world, are neutral in terms of moral status. Their instructions, guidance of how to keep perspective and how to use these areas of life, live in the world, in the real world, the practical world, which includes money. And I want to uh, reiterate uh, a point that I made earlier about uh, money as being part of the culture that Jesus lived in. Quite a few references that Jesus himself used, uh, made toward money. Money has been a part of all societies ever since um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden uh, because, well, as much as you can do barter and exchange and other things and as much as you, if you know your history, you know that the attempt at a non-money economy called communism, the results were pretty vicious, pretty destructive to human beings. And so money turns out to be a sort of a useful thing although we sometimes think of it as an evil thing, but it's not the money that's evil. It's the love of money, as we'll see in a verse a little later on, that is the problem. It's just like everything else in the physical realm. Uh, you can use just about anything in the physical world uh, for evil, but nothing in the physical world really constitutes evil in and of itself. It's how it's used that makes the difference. Today we're going to look at a priority question, 1 Kings chapter 3. If you've got that in your Bible, let me find it here a minute. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 is a story of Solomon and a choice that he made. Now just as a little background here, I would point out that Solomon was King David's son. King David was famous, Solomon was famous too, even in secular history, David is uh, one of the more common references that you might see in literature or in other forms of cultural expression. David and Goliath particularly, but David's son, Solomon, was the next in line to be king over Israel. And that's, be, uh, at, that's before it split up into Israel and Judah. So it's all 12 tribes at this time near the beginning of the kingdom of Israel, that is the kingdom of Israel. Not the judgeship uh, era, which followed Moses for 400 and some years. But there was Saul, then there was David, and then David's son Solomon took over. Solomon is famous in history. Probably more references in ancient Near East history to Solomon than to David because Solomon became the richest man in the world and probably the most powerful an important figure in that era, not limited to just Israel, but Solomon became that. And this is a story about what happened after David died. David died at the age of 70 in Jerusalem, and his son, which he himself selected by God's direction to be the king after him, was one of his younger sons, not one of his older sons. And if you read the rest of First Kings, you know that there's some battles and some conflicts in Israel over who gets to be king, but uh, David, operating by God's information to him, had selected Solomon to be his son, and he became 
the king of Israel at a pretty young age, probably under 30. He is in the category of what today would be, in sociological terms, would be called a millennial. And uh, he was in his 20s. He makes references to that in his prayer, that he was really too young for this position, but God gave it to him anyway. And uh, David, his father, gave it to him anyway. And this is what happened. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Kings. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Now let me make a comment about high places. These were literally high places throughout the land where the pagans who they had displaced had dedicated to the worship of their gods. And their gods were worshipped on the high places. Altars and totems were built on the high places because that made them closer to the heavens. And in pagan culture, there's some symbolism in that. God wanted the Israelites to, uh, to worship not in the high places that were previously dedicated to other gods, but in Jerusalem so that there could be a concentrated place for worship and teaching. The temple was eventually built there. But at the time of Solomon, the temple had not yet been built. So it was not necessarily disapproved of by God that they worship in these places so long as they worship Yahweh God, or the God that we're talking about here, the one who delivered them from Egypt. And they were worshiping in those places because the temple had not yet been built. And uh, this was part of the story of Solomon's mission, of course, was building the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Verse 2, it says, The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. I want to say one thing about that before we get to the point of why we're focusing on this story. The name of the Lord. This is an important reference in the Old Testament God, even it's referred to in the New Testament and in the book of Hebrews, uh, referring back to this, God never wanted the people of Israel to think that he lived in that temple, in the tabernacle. That was a misunderstanding on their part or a corruption on their part. God did not live in the temple or the tabernacle, but his name was put there. This is where they centered their worship, but God constantly reminded them, I don't live in buildings. I don't live in temples and tabernacles. I am the creator God of the universe. The unique message of Jesus as the Son of God was that this is God manifesting himself on the earth in physical form for the first time. That's who Jesus was as the Son of God in physical form. But he didn't live in the temple either. He walked around and uh, hobnob with commoners, fishermen, and carpenters, and all kinds of people. He visited the temple, but he walked around as God in the flesh, and that's the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus came as a representative of God, as part of God, as actual deity on earth, and now God is actually living on earth. But then Jesus said, now, I give my spirit to be in you, the followers of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, and now you are the actual presence, the physical presence of God 
on earth. And that's a very unique calling and a very important feature of what the gospel story is really all, of, all about. And verse 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, wouldn't you like God to say that to you? This is, this is the God version of the genie in the lamp, right? So you want to think about what you ask for. But here's the amazing thing about that. Jesus himself passed on to the disciples the message that you can ask God for whatever you want. Now, what God answers is another subject. But the, in Jesus' name, we can go to God and ask for whatever we want. And that's a very important principle about walking with God and living with God, that this question really has been put to us. What do you want? What do you want out of life? And that's exactly what God said to, Mo to Solomon at this point. And verse 6, Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son, to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life, or for wealth, for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and then he gave a feast for all his court. Now the record goes on to show that David, uh, Solomon never worshipped in any of the high places after this, and this was the incentive for him to get going on building the temple. So there would be a place in Jerusalem that was dedicated just to the Lord. I think sometimes it's... Um, uh, perfectly valid for us to take over things that had been dedicated to the enemy or to darkness and turn them into places of light. But that is a ministry and mission issue. And what was the problem for the Israelites constantly was mixing the two things up. There is, uh, it's a good thing to have a dedicated place 
and a dedicated time to gather for worship. But knowing that we go out from here and bring light into all of the places around us. That's our, our mission. Now I would point, an interesting, point out an interesting um, correlation here or to what happened when Solomon's son Jeroboam took over. You may remember this story if you've read through Kings. When, his, when Solomon's son Jeroboam took over, he was also a young man in what would be thought of as the millennial generation. And, you know, there has uh, been some public discussion about millennials. Uh, there's a, a book out there in Time magazine. Um, had a cover last year entitled The Me, Me, Me Generation. But I would suggest that young people um, are always a little bit that way. Like the old people don't really know what's going on. We're really with it. We've got all this new information, you know. I can Google stuff. Uh, and I get tweets, and uh, I, I find out loads of things on Facebook. That makes me way smarter than the old generation. Well, little do you know that the old generation's probably reading whatever you say on Facebook anyway, but uh, they can Google stuff too. But more important, there's been some interesting research on the fact that people who use social media the most tend to be, wait for it, dumber than average <laughs> because they think they know everything it's at your fingertips so why don't you know it but what you know is trivia and that's part of the problem and this has always been the problem of this generation I'm part of the baby boom generation and if you um, some are older than that but if you have read your history you know that the baby boom generation was thought of as being extremely arrogant uh, don't trust anybody over 30. Ever heard that expression? Jerry Rubin and a few others of the hippie, uh, uh, of the yip, yeah, the hippie gen. They, they were famous for that. Don't trust anybody over 30. That was our motto at that time. And that's because, well, the sophomoric principle. I don't know if you know that sophomore is a word that combines two Greek words, sophos or sophos and moron. Uh, so essentially it means literally sophisticated moron. And the principle being that you've now got some education, so you think you know everything, but because you don't have any life experience, you're really a moron. So you've got a lot of knowledge but no wisdom. And that's characteristic not of any generation, but of all generations of that age. And that's why we're taught in the scripture uh, frequently to seek wisdom and to seek counsel, to seek the elders. Whether you do it or not, that's important because there's a lot more than just accumulating knowledge. There's also wisdom, the application of wisdom. And this is what the problem was with Jeroboam, Solomon's son, who did not follow his pattern. Solomon knows that he's a young man and he needs wisdom to do this incredible job, this huge job of being king of a nation that his father had built up and has the history of being God's people. He knows this, so he asks for wisdom. And God says, okay, because that is your priority that you want to do right, then I'm going to give you the other things as well. I'm going to give you the things because I know you'll be able to handle them because you're going to be wise. 
And wisdom is the ability to handle life and knowledge. And so that's what Jeroboam, his own son, did not do. The story is told about 10 or 12 chapters later in 1 Kings where Jeroboam, his son, also about the same age, takes over and the elders of the nation counsel him to uh, treat the people with respect and to lighten their burden and to treat them well, give them He gave them advice. Jeroboam chose to ignore the elders' advice and he got together his friends, his compatriots, his peers. And they said, no, don't treat them with respect. Double their burden, their tax burden, and sock it to them because you're king. You're Jeroboam, the son of the king. You're numero uno. And we, your peers, tell you that. So we did that. Ruined the kingdom. This was, that was what split the kingdom apart. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and ten tribes. That split it apart. So Solomon's request was not for wealth. We sometimes think if we just had enough money, we could really succeed in life. And you know what? Some of the most successful people in history and in your own life experience have been people without much money. But they have sought God. They've sought wisdom. They've sought the things that matter most and will be there after you're dead and gone. Have you ever heard anybody say this at a funeral? This guy really, really loved his money and he did, he, he got, he got so much of it. And uh, oh, he just, I'm just so glad I knew him because he just had such a big pile of money. And his house was so glorious. And, and I'm so glad that my father, when he was young, spent all of his time remodeling our house and buying gold-plated cars and whatnot so, so that I could have a good childhood. You know what you hear? You hear people say, I'm so glad that my father or mother did not dedicate themselves to money, but de- dedicated themselves to love and family and raising their children. And that's what you hear. Because those are the things that matter the most. And that's what Solomon didn't do later on in his life, but he did at the beginning because he could see it. And God granted him the wisdom and he gave them the, him the resources to carry out his wisdom. Now I'd like you to uh, look at four points here, takeaways for life. They have a verse with them. And this is in your insert here. And I want to go through the article on the back when we finish. These are some applicational points. Takeaways are followed by a specific verse from the Bible that touches on the very point. Number one, what do you really want from life? Be honest. And this is Psalm 37, verse 4 and 5. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Well, you know, it's an interesting statement to make. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give the desires of the heart. Like all promises in the Bible, there is a condition. There is a couple editions of the Bible out there. There's lots of topical editions, study Bibles out there. Uh, one, uh, one is called the Promise Bible. All the promises of the Bible are highlighted. And I think that's great to focus on the promises of God. But there's about 1,500 of them. 
And there is not a single promise of, in the Bible that is not preceded by a recommendation or a command. And this is the, a good illustration of this. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give the desire. If you isolate, he'll give the desires of your heart from the first part of the sentence, the conditional, delight yourself in the Lord, you're going to have a big problem. Because this is not a promise of God. If you separate the sentence and just pick the phrases out of the Bible you want, you're playing a, a fool's game with this book. That's not how God communicates to us. He puts it in context. So if you delight yourself in the Lord... This is where all of the promises of prayer are tied to. What's your motivation? What do you want? And why do you want it? What do you want is a very important question. I've used this illustration before, but and a few of you know who J. Vernon McGee was. I say was because he's still on the radio, been dead about 25 years and still on the radio. One of those amazing miracles of modern technology. People have been dead are still preaching in you know, makes you think of one of those jokes about really long sermons <laughs> you could get arrested for, and uh, that uh, still preaching 25 years after he's dead. But I heard him say one time at a conference, he said, When I first got out of seminary, I was really, I needed to buy a car so I could start my ministry. And I was asking, Lord, what kind of car should I get? There's so many cars out there, Lord, what kind of, and this was. This was way back when there probably were only about six models and instead of 186,000 models. Uh, and what kind of car should I get, Lord? And he said, finally, the Lord spoke audibly to him, or at least he thought it was. Well, Jay Vernon, what kind of car do you want? Well, that's a very good question. You know what? Until you tell God what you want, what you'd like, what you'd like in a partner, what you'd like in a job, what you'd like for a house, what you'd like for a car, what you'd like for a church. Until you start telling God those things, you're not going to get any information because he can't even say no if you don't say what you want. If you say what you want, then God's going to say, no, I'm not that dumb. Or maybe, or not today, but next year, or... Yes, that's a great idea. I will provide that. I will answer that prayer, and you're right on track. And you can't adjust your value system until, in private, before God, you get specific. Start with that. Get specific. What is it you really want? And don't need to play games with him because he already knows. But until the communication gets open and honest, there's not going to be any back and forth on the subject. Number two. Conspicuous consumption is still sin. 1 Timothy 6, verse 8 through 10. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now you may be familiar with this verse from... Uh, older translation love of money is the root of all evil well it's the same meaning if you think about a tree and you think about all the things that are up on the tree the leaves and the fruit and the branches they all got a common root now there's lots of different trees but if you love money a whole lot of different kinds of evil will grow out of that 
It'll start by dishonesty, uh, things, all kind of things that are morally wrong grow out of the love of money. In other words, it's a source. It's a source of other kinds of evil. That's what Paul is saying there for Timothy to teach to the people. But number two, the, the statement that I make there, conspicuous consumption, is still a sin. I say it that way because I don't know if you remember, I mentioned that I'm part of the baby boom, boom generation, but I don't know if, you know if you remember this expression from the hippie revolution of the 60s and the early 70s, conspicuous consumption. Conspicuous consumption, conspicuous consumption. I mean, these college kids, they're so happy they learned a big word. So they go around, conspicuous, consum- conspicuous consumption, pointing a finger, putting signs out, marching down the street, blocking the freeway, conspicuous consumption. They had a point. The point is that in a society like ours that emphasizes capitalism and freedom, conspicuous consumption is the sinful byproduct. It doesn't have to be. All of these things can result in great good in the world and have resulted in great good in the world. This society has done a great deal of positive in the world and is to this day. Why do you think people are risking their lives to get here? It still is. But it is also true that the result of unfettered capitalism and unfettered freedom if someone is so inclined they can be twisted in this way there is some moral corruption in our society that relates to that the ever-growing gap for example between working people and the owner class this is part of the problem that is going to lead to a revolution historically it always has There's many illustrations from history of that. But conspicuous consumption means simply this. You have enough to live? Then be content with that. And pass the rest on. Pass the rest on to people who need it. Or the cause of Christ in some way. That's our mission. That's the value of the authentic Christian. Not... I'm going to display my wealth so people can know that I'm better than them, I'm smarter than them, and I'm higher on the echelon of approved people. There is no one way to decide what kind of car to buy, what kind of house to live in, but the values are reflected by how we live. There's no glorification of poverty, but there should be no glorification of wealth either. Because that's what he's talking about here. If we have food and clothing with these, we should be content. If God gives us more, it's so that we can bless other people and be useful. Not so that we can show off how important we are. It's the conspicuous part of it. That's the problem. Look at me. I'm better than you. That's the moral corruption side of it. Number three, live generously. Matthew 11 Verse 4 to 5, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. This is Jesus answering the disciples of John the Baptist who came and asked him, Are you the one? And Jesus says, Well, just 
Tell them what I'm doing, and that'll be evidence. Do you do things like this? Are you engaged with your neighbors and coworkers as, uh, or fellow students or extended family in such a way that they might describe you as somebody who's there for them? We have a, um, a tendency in our society to think that if the government isn't doing it, or the church collectively isn't doing it, then it's not being done. The question is, are you doing this? Do you live this way? Do you live generously? Do people see you in this way? Salt and light. As a person, as a family. Oh, the church can do some collective things. Government can do some collective things. But let's face it, 95% of a compassionate society comes down to you as a person. You're the one with the personal contacts. You're the one with the resources. And just talking about, well, the church needs to do more. Or the government needs to do more. May sound like righteousness to a fool. But to God, it sounds like copying out. What are you doing? If you're not doing anything that looks like how Jesus lived, then we need to answer for that. Number four, look up, not sideways. Romans 12, 68, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is a section like 1 Corinthians 12. Romans 12 is a section dealing with the gifts of the Spirit, how they function in the body. He specifically mentions giving, generosity, but he also mentions the other gifts. Whatever God has blessed you with, he blessed you with it so that you could be useful to the people around you. You got a gift of teaching? Use it. Even if it's one-on-one. And especially if it's one-on-one. You got the ability to give money? Do it. And be happy about it. Rejoice about it. Even if it's one-on-one. Especially if it's one-on-one. You got the ability to do acts of mercy. Uh, exhortation. All of these things. Service. Do it to the Lord. Sometimes we get a little bogged down and everybody's got to do what I'm doing. Otherwise, they're not very righteous. Look around and say, well, how come nobody's doing this? How come nobody's doing that? Nobody's doing nothing. What do you mean nobody's doing nothing? They're just not doing what you're doing. Does that mean it's nothing? Well, yeah, because if they were doing something meaningful, it would be just like what I'm doing. I am the true model of righteousness. So anybody not doing what I do is not doing anything at all. Hmm. Maybe there's a little egoism that needs to be saved there about who we are. Now I want to close with this uh, challenge. I mentioned this last week, and if I don't do it now, it'll slip away. On the back side of your page, I'm going to read this as the closing part of this. Understanding tithing. Now, this is not a separate subject because it's throughout the scripture. The word tithe literally means a tenth. And it is first seen in the Bible in Genesis 14 
when Abraham tithes all his possessions for the support of the priest Melchizedek as a means of worshiping God. The tithe was later embedded in the Hebrew civil and religious law, Exodus through Leviticus, as a form of taxation to support the priests, the temple, the rulers, but also as an act of worship. A distinction was made between tithing and free will offerings. The concept of first fruits, or the tithe, in agricultural societies, even in other cultures, referred to giving the first and the best of their crops to God's work and for their collective activities. The message from God, and the reason it was part of the Old Testament law, was as follows. That everybody needed to give something, that those with more should give more, and that it should be given with joy and gratitude to God who provided it in the first place. Tithing is not an ordinance. That is a specific religious act commanded by Jesus for all Christians for all time. Christians are, however, exhorted to give in proportion to their income, to share their wealth with their brothers and sisters, and to support those serving God in ministry. The tithe principle works best in the Christian context as a personal discipline rather than as a rule or a doctrine. It, it can then be adapted to the individual's needs, opportunities, and heart attitude. While tithing is not an ordinance, it is a pattern established by God for healthy and successful living and daily life. All of the patterns revealed in the Bible are God's way of helping us live successfully as he created us. Just as the Sabbath should be viewed more as a principle of time management, so the tithe should be viewed more as a principle of personal discipline and not a technical issue of percentages. When we tithe our income, we take a percentage of our income and give it to the cause of Christ. No bargains or purchases. They may take, this may take discipline, but God honors sacrifice when done for the right reasons. God's promise to bless tithing refers to the fact that if we put God first in our finances, we'll have better attitudes toward money and we'll have more success with money. The church and other ministries will thrive and God will find joy in our willingness to worship him with the material as well as the spiritual areas of life. That's a starting application if this area of your life needs a way to bring it into line. Start with this. I just gave you a tool here. And uh, if you're already doing that, rejoice in that and look to God for his blessing. Father, we are thankful that you are eminently practical. You tell us what we need to live our lives in a way that you intended a way that will glorify you, but also make us successful. We thank you for the gifts of money, opportunities, jobs, a free society, and all the blessings that we take so much for granted where we live. We thank you for those things. But Lord, we do not want to be idolaters. We want this to be part of our effectiveness, the way Jesus sent us out to be salt and light in the world. Bless this church. Bless each of us as individuals. We want every area of our lives to be dedicated to you. We want that discipline, but we also want you to bless these areas. That's why we give them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.